0: From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Many Georgians are familiar with the iconic movies made here. There's Driving Miss Daisy, Fried Green Tomatoes, and Who Can Forget the Famous Bus Stop in Forrest Gump, filmed in Chippewa Square in Savannah. But it wasn't until the state legislature passed the Georgia Entertainment Industry Investment Act in 2008 that the state stepped into the spotlight as the Hollywood of the South. Yollywood, if you will. Jamila Nuruddin is an actor and producer who got her start in Georgia before the boom. She's among those featured at the Macon Film Festival this weekend, and she's going to be joining the Making Room at the Table panel. It's about women in Georgia's film industry at the festival tomorrow, but joins us now from Los Angeles. Jamila, welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. We should note that Kalina Buller of GBB's podcast, The Credits, will be moderating that panel. But I want to talk about you. First of all, how you got here, producer, editor, actor. And you started with acting at the age of 12. Do I have that right? You do. You do. I. I. It was an
1: amazing story because the very first acting class I actually ever went to, I heard about an open call for a role they were casting at the then Family Channel station. And I went and out of 500 girls all over the uh, United States, I was one of the ones selected and immediately started working in Atlanta as a a child actor.
0: So what was that like auditioning at 12?
1: (laughs) You know, it was surprisingly easy (laughs) for me just because I've always been kind of comfortable speaking in front of people. And so it was very effortless for me to just kind of c- to connect. And I was around a lot of amazing actors at a young age. I worked with Don Cheadle and Cicely Tyson, Irma P. Hall, all when I was, you know, 12, uh, 14. And I just learned from them. And so it became pretty, it became almost a, a relaxation, uh, a sense of joy and relaxation for me to
0: act. Okay, we went a little deep cut and have a clip of you. This is from A Lesson Before Dying, TV movie adaptation of the Ernest Gaines novel. When you worked with Don Cheadle and Cicely Tyson, let's hear. Stop that noise, please. Jefferson, her
2: cousin, Mr. Wiggins. I
0: know that, Irene. What is it like listening to that now, remembering you at that age?
1: Oh my gosh, the memories are flooding back. Um, just the, we were on a real sugar cane plantation, uh, for the set. We were on a, it was amazing. And just hearing, hearing the laughter in the room, we, there was a deep connection with all of the, the kids. And it was just a tight crew and tight cast. And it's just amazing to
0: hear it. <laughs> and, and you got hooked, it sounds like.
1: I did. I did. I got hooked. And from there, I started really getting into, I went to a performing arts high school in Atlanta, Brook High School. And I got very deep into theater and Shakespeare and the classics. And that led me right on into my adult life. And I got a degree, actually, a BFA in theater at USC right after that. So
0: So what was the appeal of theater, live theater over film for you?
1: Well, it's interesting theater, there's less help. Like, it's very easy to see whether someone, you know, you either have it or you don't, is sort of the way I've always been told in, in theater. Like, there's no hiding it. Whereas with, uh, you know, film, you can do take after take after take to get that one performance that is strong, and that's all that the audience sees. So theater's a little bit more, you know, it's out there. Mm-hmm. Y- you got to bring it every time. There's no do-overs. And uh, for that reason, when you work on theater, it just brings you chops, like you just have this depth you can pull from to get to where you need to go immediately as an actor.
0: But you also did make a transition, or you did some work behind the camera or behind the stage (laughs) set, I guess we would say, for theater, eventually Mm -hmm. getting into producing and editing and won Best Film Editor at the Women's Independent Film Festival. This was back in 2015 for Why I Dance. First of all, tell us a little bit about that film. It was about women pole dancers,
1: right? Yes, it is. It's about women pole dancing, but it's actually about so much more. It's about women reclaiming their bodies. This was just pre the Me Too movement, but it was very much of that same vein of, of women owning their bodies and their, and its innate sensual power for themselves without the, um, the need for approval or acceptance or, you know, we we all know when we look at advertising and things like that, just how much women are sort of objectified in our society, just on a purely (laughs) just cultural basis. And to have women of all different shapes and sizes, ages, backgrounds, just uh, owning themselves, it was a very moving piece. We got international press off of that. It went viral, that video. Um, and then went on to win a lot of awards just because I think at that time we hadn't seen women really reclaiming themselves with the pole involved. You mm-hmm. know, it's a very controversial, um, <laughs> uh, thing, but yeah.
0: Okay. So that went viral. That was a, that was a huge hit, got a lot of notice and attention. And this is a film about women in, in the, tr- you know, the pole dancing trade. Mm -hmm. Women, of course, statistically, a huge part of the movie-going audience, we know, more than 51%. But did people look at that and think, oh, that's a women's film. You know, that's not going to get distribution. You know, what kind of conversations were there around the topic for you?
1: The conversation, it included men. Men felt very honored to see women expressing themselves this way. I think it brought men to a place of recognizing that if the women in their lives felt good about themselves, how much better their lives would be if women were more secure in our society. So it truly does have this ripple effect. Women connect deeply to it because they recognize that freedom that you have when you're a child, when you're a little girl, where you don't judge your body, you just love your body. And I think men were able to respect the fact that this is something that has been taken from adult women or women, you know, prepubescent women, where you, there is this scrutiny that we have. And I, felt, I found that most men were very celebratory, a little uneasy at first. Like, am I supposed to, you know, most of the time when you see a beautiful woman or a pole, you think that's for the, man, the male gaze and they're supposed to find that, you know, attractive. But once they realize it's about her, not about me, they were able to just revel in the beauty of femininity, which is something we all can appreciate.
0: My guest is the actor and Atlanta native Jamila Nuruddin. She's coming back to the Peach State this weekend for the Macon Film Festival, which is going on all weekend. Well, I want to hear more about that. You're joining this panel, Making Room at the Table, Women in Georgia's Film Industry. Your work has involved elevating female voices for a long time. Is that something that you intentionally wanted to do, get involved with women in filmmaking? Or is it just that projects came along to you and you wanted to be a part of them?
1: That's interesting. It was a, it was a mix. It, it began just i 've always cared about marginalized voices and unheard voices that has always interested me most in filmmaking and through the people and the company i 've been keeping i've i 've been moved to produce and edit and act and dance in projects that really uh, underline that for women so the the marginalized voices was intentional, but the fact that i 've been centered on femininity and women has been a little accidental. It's just been because of the projects that have come across the table uh, for me and I've said yes.
0: (laughs) Well, and and you're saying yes to this panel because we're looking at a hundred top grossing films of 2018, 4% of those were directed by women, 15% writers, 3% of cinematographers. So let's say for the population and the audience, woefully underrepresented. And how curious about the kind of conversations that you have with your colleagues about that? Does it feel like you're wrestling against a system? It does. It does feel like a system and it's a system
1: that we are all a part of. I want to say first and foremost, it's not like there's just some big bad man there that's, you know, pushing people. I mean, maybe there is, but it's more that we are all complicit in this view of a successful filmmaker being a white man. That's just the view that we've had because that's what's been. People want to hire more women, they want to have more diversity, but there's a lack of representation when you start looking at people's credits. Because of the way things have been, women, you know, female directors, for instance, they don't have as many credits necessarily um, as a male counterpart might have. And so it's almost like people have to take that chance um, in order to give a female DP, a female editor, a shot in order to have more inclusion but the truth is we need these voices projects are better when you have more representation in the uh, at the top level kind of deciding how the story is told it will be more a more effective story and that's the point I keep driving home is that this isn't charity this is literally to make uh, the
0: highest form of art yeah and diversity sells films with casts that were from 31 to 40 percent minority received the highest median global box office receipts that oh, same year 2018. Also seeing a study, this is a 2017 study, that women will turn off a film or TV show if too stereotyped or lacking in female characters. So, you know, you're trying to make a case that reality sells on some level. <laughs> but if you don't have the credits, I mean, you're, you're somewhat established. You've got credits behind you. How does someone get a start or what encourages them to get a start in the business if they're facing an uphill battle?
1: You know, I think it's community. Um, I think film communities with the internet and everything that it can do now, we're starting to see these little pockets of community forming. And I had the pleasure of going to Sundance Film Festival for the last two years. And I've been moved almost to tears at meeting like the stereotypical, you know, rich white Jewish man producer with tons of credits. Um, who has leaned into me and literally said, "You know, I I want to hire more women. Do you know? I want to hire more female directors. Do you know any?" And it's like there's this desire. I think young film female filmmakers need to realize that there is a desire for you. That people want to hear your story. They want to hear your voice. There's just a disconnect. There's no uh, set paths. So you need to just let it be known to your network what you want to do. You need to be in touch with the people who you want to aspire to work with to reach out to them, let, let, let them know what your intentions are, because there is space for you. People do want to help you, but you have to let it be known.
0: Mm. Well, you did start recently partnering with Advancing Women Executives. This is a training and development firm for executives. So how does your background in film contribute to your work with women at Fortune 500 companies?
1: You know, it's amazing. When I when I took on this role, I thought that it would be a little bit more of a departure than it was. But my background in storytelling, filmmaking and acting serves so much because so much of in these boardrooms, so much of really selling anything or, or getting buy in on a company level is your ability to tell a story you know there's a great quote a confused mind says no Hmm. so people are the least bit confused about what your intention is or why you're you're pushing this you know initiative in your company they'll just say no so you really have to have kind of that intentionality that that a filmmaker has that a storyteller has when you know what your objective is and then be able to communicate it in a way that is compelling so with a lot of these executives we work on everything from improv to the components of storytelling to being relaxed um, meeting the gaze, you know, a lot of women are taught to shrink back and shrink down. And being able to, you know, sit up and and push your chair up and have a seat at the table with confidence is something that will really further a lot of careers, which in that same way helps the global economy, because companies that have women
0: at the top outperform their peers that don't. Well, you're taking your seat at the table this weekend. (laughs) Uh, You've been living out in L.A. for a little while, but you are known to pop back to Georgia every now and again. How do you see the industry in Georgia comparing to what's going on uh, on the coasts?
1: Well, I love Georgia because it's so, you know, when I was a child actor there and acting there, it was small. It was very tiny. This was like, you know, 15 years ago. It felt very much more intimate. And now you're starting to see filmmakers, you know, moving to Atlanta to work there. And the the community is so rich and, and not jaded. And that kind of collaboration that Georgia has right now, it's very kind of feels almost underground and, and grassroot initiative for filmmaking. It's very honorable and it, it can, the bigger cities, you know, New York, LA, they definitely have their advantages, but Atlanta has an edge of the, the community of filmmakers that are there. It's just so connected and real.
0: Well, we will be glad to have you back. And thank you so much for speaking with us.
1: Thank you so much. Have a good
0: one. Jamila Nuruddin, you can see her this weekend at the Macon Film Festival. She's going to be on the panel Making Room at the Table Women in Georgia's Film Industry, moderated by our colleague, Kalina Buller of the Credits Podcast from GPB. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. There are so many elements that contribute to our perception of rock stars, how they move on stage or jump or dance or gyrate, what they wear, maybe eyeliner or leather or a big cowboy hat. And of course, there's the instrument they play. Today, we're going to talk about one of them. A new exhibition at the Museum of Design in Atlanta, otherwise known as MODA, examines this classic instrument, how it's made, with what materials, and the iconic musicians that we associate with the six string twiner. You're listening to Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix as we welcome Todd Vaught. He's curator of the exhibit at Moda, which is called Wire and Wood, Designing Iconic Guitars. And it's on view until September 29th, but he's with me in the studio today. Todd, thank you for being here.
3: Oh Thank you. I'm excited to be here.
0: And also with me, Dennis Fano. He's a luthier that means guitar maker. He is founder of Fano Guitars, Nova Guitars and Revolta Guitars. He's also featured in the exhibit at Moda and he's joining us from Nashville. Dennis, thank you so much for taking the time.
2: Thanks so much for having me.
0: All right, Todd, I'm going to start with you. Right now we're listening to the opening scene of a documentary called It Might Get Loud featuring Jack White.
3: And, you know, who says you need to buy a guitar?
0: Todd, what did we just hear?
3: Yeah, so th- that was Jack White at the the first sixty seconds of the film. Um, he creates a diddly bow, right, right there on on film. And that movie, when it came out, I want to say it was eight or nine years ago. Um, that. That initial sequence just put a seed in my head and it, and it never really left and uh, When Moda contacted me about um potentially doing another exhibit, uh, that popped up that whole idea that a guitar is really when you break it down just wire and wood it's and he shows that right in its beautiful little sixty second sequence that that it's really that simple and now we all know it 's not that simple, but we like to you know think about those fundamentals and and I really started to think about. Um, the nature of guitars and how important they are to a musician's image and and those design themes that not only go into creating uh, guitars themselves, but how uh, creating one's image is a design. And so really wanted to just kind of study how those two things go together.
0: Jack White is, of course, in the Rock Contours, and they're going to be playing at the Tabernacle in Atlanta next week. But he really came to fame as a guitarist for the raw rock duo, the White Stripes. Here's their song, Ball and Biscuit. Now, that diddly bow from Jack White is the most DIY guitar that you have on display in the show. Why, overall, look at the design of guitars? Like, what is the benefit of that?
3: Well, f- for me, um, I mean, with Jack White specifically, right? You mentioned he was raw and a raw um, sort of sound. He played these really cheap guitars, and one of them was an airline, um, like a Glass, which is a, a cheap um, department store guitar. And,. Um, the thought about playing something like that versus what is typically a, you know, it could be a three or four thousand dollar instrument, always sort of, I always found it interesting that certain guitarists would talk about their instruments like they were irreplaceable. Yet here's this worldwide phenomenon playing this thing that came out of a catalog for seventy five bucks, right? And so I wanted to understand from a design standpoint. What is truly making these different instruments unique? What, why is one really better than another when they're both just wire and wood? And so that's what really went, uh, sort of led me to examine the idea of uh, looking at the design of the guitars and, and what separates one from another.
0: Well, of course, the department store guitar and the affordable guitar is part of what revolutionized American music. But I want to talk to Dennis about the opposite end of the spectrum. So working yeah. with the guitars, you make them, you build them, has been yes. a huge part of your life, starting in middle school, tinkering with your classical guitar by removing the strings. Now What what motivated a middle schooler to do that?
2: It, it was the start of uh, MTV. Uh, it was the early 80s, uh, and I was exposed to music really for the first time. You know, I started out playing a, a classical guitar, uh, but I quickly re- realized that what I wanted to play was uh, the bass guitar. So uh, I removed a couple of strings from my from the uh, nylon string guitar that I had, and uh, that was essentially the first bass that I owned.
0: Well, Leo Fender heard many guitar players talking about the feedback caused by magnetic pickups during performances, and he set out to fix that problem. What were some of the problems or pain points that motivated you to make your own guitars, Dennis? Uh,
2: I think I just wanted to make instruments that were uh, you know, extremely durable and uh, uh, reliable. Um, I had spent uh, many years repairing uh, instruments. I, I saw what was working and what wasn't. So I think uh, it came out of a need to want to build a, a, a better mousetrap.
0: Todd, the exhibit focuses on the design aspect of guitars and kind of deconstructs them. There, there's a there's a section about the components of the instrument and then the step-by-step art of making a guitar. How did these contribute to our understanding of the design of a guitar?
3: Well, my background's industrial design, right? So I'm always thinking about how I mean, sitting in the studio, I look at this microphone and all I can do is think about how all these little pieces go together and how it was built, right? So I always think you gain amazing knowledge about design by understanding how things go together. And when somebody looks at a finished piece, they may not have that background to understand how it got there. So I think it's it's really wonderful for people to be able to come in and see on one end of a wall just a chunk of wood. You know, everybody understands that's a block of wood. Then you see all these um, sort of stages in, in between and you really get to see how it um, gets gets manufactured from that block of wood to a finished playing guitar and um, it was great to work with uh, Dennis and his team to help isolate those steps into the most simplified form that we could I think we got it down to 14, 14 steps um, and then to show that with real pieces and so um, I think it's a it's a great display to help people understand from a design standpoint.
0: And wood is still the primary material used for guitars, although there's a lot of composite and other things that you show in the exhibition. So with a material like wood, there are naturally occurring variations. no two pieces of wood are exactly alike. So if you made two guitars in precisely the same way, would they sound differently?
2: uh they would um the The difference could be subtle. Um, or it could be glaringly obvious you won't know until you actually plug the guitar in for the first time and and listen to it.
3: Junior Brown, uh, gave me a great sort of quote about that. And, and, you know, in coming up with the get steal with Michael Stevens, he, uh, you know, he kind of put it down like, um, you know, it's like baking a cake, right? You know, you, you know, generally how to bake a cake, just add that extra 10 or 15% in there that you don't know. And that's yeah. what you get with a guitar. You know, the, the you, you might build three of those get steels or, or any other guitar the exact same way, but that mm-hmm. natural variation in the wood is that ten or fifteen percent that might be it might be that ten, fifteen percent that makes it amazing and it might just make it pedestrian. So you you you're kinda up to the luck of the draw a little bit.
0: That is Todd Vaught, he's curator of the wire and wood exhibit at Moda. Also with me Dennis Fano, a luthier and founder of Fano guitars, Nova Guitars and Revolta guitars. Well, Dennis, how did you discover that, that, that extra 15%, that different ingredient?
2: Uh, you know, through a lot of experimentation. Uh, I've been building guitars for about 25 years now. And, um, you know, with every instrument, you learn something new. Uh, you find out what you like, what you don't like, uh, and, and try to distill uh, the better uh, of, of the, the ones that you make um, finding just the, the things that make them different and trying to uh, incorporate those in, in future builds.
0: What are some of the other design elements you consider, Dennis? You know, shape or color or even names. Some of the names are fantastic.
2: Yeah, um, it's, a, it's a long process. Uh, it usually starts with the instrument itself, uh, shapes. Most of the designs that I come up with are uh, what are considered offset uh, guitars Uh, where it's not a symmetrical design. They're slightly offset. Um, I like the way that those uh, instruments balance. Um, uh, So that's another thing to consider. It's not just about what it looks like, what it sounds like, but it's also how the instrument feels when you're playing that instrument. You want it to hang a certain way. Um, Whether you're sitting down or you're standing up, you want a guitar that's going to be well balanced. So uh, yeah, there's a, 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 a lot of things to consider. Uh, the names are something that uh, uh I like to have a little bit of fun with um the novo model names are all derived from uh from the latin language uh, and they all have things that are meaningful to me
0: the the name of the guitar you mentioned you know searching for the origins telecaster in itself the name is something that leo fender came up with can do you know the story behind the origins of that
3: um you know, uh, initially his first guitar was the broadcaster, right? And and he named it the broadcaster because he was broadcasting it over speakers, and that was one of one of the first guitars that that would do that. Um, and ultimately, he got into some uh, trademark uh, issues there. There was a, I think, another company. It may it may have been even Gratch had a drum kit called the the broadcaster. Um, That's right. But anyway, who was it? Yes, it was Gratch. It was Gratch. Um, yes, and so. Um, you know, he needed to back off the broadcaster name. But with, you know, the sort of the the turn of um, television coming into everybody's homes, you know, Fender was really trying to push something different than Gibson, where Gibson was more, again, traditional. Uh, Leo wanted to push into the future. And so the idea of tele with television, um, he put it on the front of the caster and it became the telecaster. Mm. There's something I want to just add in there a little bit was what you just asked was a big driver for the study of the exhibition, one of the things that I recognized uh, is when you find these sort of custom luthier shops making custom guitars, what I was seeing over and over were um, designs that looked like other guitars, right? It was, I would see a custom guitar and I'd look at it and say, that's a Telecaster. Or right. I would, you know, see a custom guitar and say, that's a Les Paul. Like, what, I, don't, I don't understand this. Why are, you know, if you have the ability to design something, why are you just designing something that looks like something else? And that, um, that led me to Dennis. And, you know, when I found Dennis um, building things, he's not just a custom shop, right? I mean, they're a real guitar company, but he wasn't just producing something that looked like something old. It was something very classic in its look, yet it was new. And it didn't look like everything else, and I thought, from a design standpoint, that's a story you really want to get behind, and you really want to talk about because nobody's really doing that. It's a, it's interesting how um, it's mostly traditionalists that sort of you know, love and keep the guitar sort of guitar hero thing alive. Mm-hmm. Um, so they want the old classic stuff, and it's really hard to break in with something this new and different.
0: Well, that's the thing, and you know, if you looked at old cellos you know the 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 more ancient the stradivarius or something built in the 17th century the more value it would be the guitar development does that mean that a guitar that is an older guitar is not as valued or they have to be retired after a certain amount of time or do you just keep playing um
3: you know uh, dennis can probably speak to this better than i can but you know you 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 hear all the time i mean there's there's certain guitars that just have these classic qualities that everybody's looking for. I mean, a 59 Les Paul. And, you know, you you, you get a hold of these guitars and you don't let them go. You know, a, a fan favorite of mine, I mean, Stevie Ray Vaughan, right? I loved Stevie Ray Vaughan, always have. Um, and he had this one particular guitar, Stratocaster, he played all the time. You know, di- different people tell you different things about these histories of these instruments, but they said that basically every part of that thing has been rebuilt about six times. You know, it's got... You know, all new hardware in it multiple times, four different necks on it. I mean, the the body is really the only original piece left. And so it sort of becomes a, a Frankenstein instrument after a while. But Dennis, I don't know what you think.
2: For sure. You know, uh, from the standpoint of a new instrument, we want to build an instrument that's going to last, you know, uh, the player's lifetime. Uh, ideally, uh, it, it will be durable enough to do that. And I think what you're seeing with a lot of those vintage guitars, uh, the Strats, the tellies, the Les Pauls from the 50s, uh, they are so good. Um, there's no reason why you wouldn't want to play them as long as you could. But many of those instruments, uh, when you have a touring musician, they will retire those instruments because they, they are incredible. uh, valuable, and they don't want anything to happen to them.
0: You say you design guitars the way that you you think they should be. But when you were starting out, you did make a custom guitar for the guitars from the band XDC. I think, Dave Gregory, do I have that right?
2: Uh, The first one that I made was for Andy Partridge, but I did get around to making one uh, for Dave Gregory and for Colin Moulding as well.
0: So what was that experience like working with somebody who said, this is what I want in a guitar?
2: It was a little daunting because I was working with somebody that I was, you know, that, whose music I, I you know, was a, a huge fan of, um, but it was really interesting to uh, to hear what it was that he wanted um, and and try to uh, you know uh, do my best to to deliver on those desires.
0: So, are you more interested in making custom-designed guitars or putting your own vision on the market?
2: Um, I would say uh, the latter. Uh, we're we're building a, a company. We're building a brand. And, um, you know, we still do custom instruments, but our bread and butter is the guitars that we make every day.
0: Well, Todd, there are a number of, quote-unquote, iconic guitars on display from Steve Vai, Orianthe, and Bo Diddley. How did you go about getting all these guitars for the exhibition?
3: Yeah, so I've um, curated a couple of uh, museum exhibitions at this point, and, and this was really unique in that um, what's happened previously is if I needed something, I would go out to a manufacturer, right? Because they all have marketing departments, and um, and you can get them interested by saying, look, we're going to show off what you've worked for. Um, In this show, this did not work at all. Reached out to Fender, reached out to Gibson. I mean, you couldn't get anywhere. And so the surprising thing was it was the artists that got interested. So I started reaching out directly to artists through either their agents or, I mean, I got to Metallica through their website, believe that or not. <laughs> no way. Um, Info
0: at Metallica. Pretty much, yeah.
3: I mean, and, and you know, you end up, you know, six months later in a green room with James Hetfield thinking, I and I emailed their website and this is where I am. It was pretty weird.
0: Well, let's hear James Hetfield on his ESP Snakebite. This is Enter Sandman by Metallica.
3: Um, And so uh, just really trying to get that list that was going to cover generations of artists, you know, old and young, really something for everybody, right? I don't want anybody to walk away and feel like, I didn't see what I wanted to see.
0: That is Todd Vaught, curator of wire and wood, designing iconic guitars. It's on view at the Museum of Design Atlanta until September 29th. And Dennis Fano, he's a guitar builder, founder of Fano Guitars, Novo Guitars, and Revolta Guitars. We're going to leave you with Making Plans for Nigel by XDC as we head into a quick break. But please stay with us. When we come back, we'll hear about some of the iconic guitars on display. I'm Virginia Prescott. Stay with us for more of On Second Thought. And we're back with On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. Whether it is the twang of a blues tune, the finger picking of a folk song, or the shredding in heavy metal music, the guitar is central to our concept of popular music. But how does the design, the look, the sound, and feel play into how a guitar becomes iconic? Right now, the Museum of Design Atlanta has an exhibit exploring exactly that. It's called Wire and Wood, and it's on display until September the 29th. You're listening to I Love Hot Nights by Jonathan Richman and the Modern Lovers as we continue our conversation with the exhibit's curator, Todd Vaught, and guitar builder, Dennis Fano. Before the break, we talked about the making and design of a guitar. And let's get into the rock stars. Um, there's a whole room in Wire and Wood showcasing the guitars of a number of significant musicians. You mentioned Junior Brown's uh, Todd. But why do we think these fancy guitars say Billy Duffy's Gretch White Falcom? What does that add? Um,
3: you've got a, a, a very small audience that's interested in design. And most people don't think about it a whole lot. Um, And so what I've tried to do with exhibits that I've worked on there is find other subject matter that people are interested in that will bring in a a broader audience, if you will, and then you teach them about design once they get there. So we trick them to get in with the cool stuff, like, hey, do you want to see these really cool guitars? Um, And then when they're there, you you show them these interesting sort of design uh, uh, elements, Billy Duffy, Junior Brown, St. Vincent – uh, Jack White, certainly, these are all different age groups, different musical styles that would appeal to a broader audience, um, so that when people come in, they get to see wow that's that 's the guitar that i you know i 've heard on these records for all of these years. And uh, there it is right in front of me, and then you get to learn something really special about it.
0: Okay, I want to go to St. Vincent because there are a few guitars made iconic by women. And Annie Clark, Saint Vin- who performs as St. Vincent, is on display. She has the St. Vincent Signature Music Man, very involved in the design process on this one. Well, let's hear a little bit of her song, her playing it in action. This is the song Los Angeles. Designed to, as she said, have room for a breast or two, as she put it. But she was also adamant that it shouldn't be classified as masculine or feminine. What made this innovative?
3: Yeah, I think that that's, uh, it's interesting. I mean, one of the things that, uh, you know, I, so I got to talk to Sterling Ball a good bit, who Sterling um, is the, the head guitar builder and head guitar designer at, uh, for Music Man at Ernie Ball. And um, in talking to him about his work with Annie, um, just understanding her goals, right, to make this an instrument that, that was good for her to play. And certainly um, lightweight was a big part of it. I mean, we all pick up a guitar and think, ah, this is fine. And then after you play a song or two, you go, oh, this thing's kind of heavy. Um, so, you know, weight is, is a big deal. And so they skinnied this thing up, and it is. It's very light. Um, the profile of it is very unique. Um, the St. Vincent was unlike anything I've seen. It broke the mold. It didn't look anything like – I mean, you would never confuse that thing with anything Gibson would ever do or anything Fender would ever do or Paul Reed Smith or any of these big you know, guitar manufacturers. So it was fun to see them really change and really break the mold on what these things look like, and then she put her own characteristics and her own spin on there. Um, to play the way that she wanted it to play, and 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 out out it came. Right.
0: Let's hear about an Atlanta native, Rich Robinson of the Black Crows, said that sound is king, but in his early years, the look did affect him certainly. Like seeing Keith Richards on stage playing a Telecaster. What is the what is the impact of wanting to play where your heroes are playing, and that's why these guitars just get passed down from one to the next.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think just watching, you know, seeing videos with the rise of MTV and seeing Keith Richards run around with that Telecaster, when 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 Rich Robinson said that, um, you know, I, you could totally relate, right? And then you remember when the Black Crows came out in the 90s, and you're like, wow, they're, they're like, you know, the, I know they hate this, but <laughs> they're like the new Rolling Stones, you know? They're the, They're a great rock and roll band, and they're playing rock and roll, and there's no frills, and there's no effects, and it's just straight down rock, and he's got that Telecaster, and wow, that's what I want to do, you know? So, you really see how the inspiration of the people that you look up to came from the people before them, and it just keeps getting handed on and on. And so, um, I don't know, the, the, Keith and the Telecaster, they, they, I think, inspired a, a whole bunch of people.
0: Let's hear a little bit of the Black Crows, the song Jealous Again with a Telecaster in action. Well, actually, one of the things that you do in the show is you say uh, other artists that are associated with this. I'm thinking Bruce Springsteen, we have with the Telecaster, Joe Strummer from The Clash, Otis Redding's great guitarist, Steve Cropper, um, plenty of others. But then there's the classic... Buck Owens, Harmony American. This is a red, white, and blue acoustic guitar that became integral to his image. He had the idea, apparently, in the 60s, showing patriotism when people were burning flags and marching. How about the look? Is it is it more about the look than the sound?
3: I think in that case it is, right? I mean, the, some of those acoustic guitars. And, and, you know, Buck was on TV, right? So the visual, the visual, the aesthetic was a huge part of, of an image. And this gets into that whole part of the exhibition of studying You know, what is that design of your image? And now that he's not just uh, coming across your radio with the buckaroos in the, you know, in the 50s, he's on your TV screen now in color. You know, I think uh, it struck a lot of people and um, obviously from Americana, you know, a little bit corny and um, but certainly impacted everyone to where they remember it. And I I think, um, you know, it's funny because those guitars, you know, the the real guitar player on that show was was, was, uh, Roy Clark. And I remember myself trying to learn guitar. My, my father told me if I, could learn to, if I could learn how to play under the double eagle, he would buy me any guitar I wanted. So I worked, I worked real hard to learn to play under the double eagle.
0: <laughs> well, okay, so we're not going to play that, but we're going to play Buck Owens playing that guitar. This is, is The Streets of Bakersfield. Trying to find me something
2: better On the streets of Bakersfield you don't know me, but you don't like me. You say you care less how
0: I feel. So Dennis, that was a guitar. Um, Sears and Roebuck sold it for what, $100, something like that? Um, sold loads of them, helped it, aided and abetted by Buck Owens. How does the look of a guitar uh, impact you as as appeal or as a maker?
2: Uh, it's really important. You know, everybody wants to look cool. Um, you know, you uh, know, I have to consider that when I'm designing a guitar. Uh, even just every day when we're finishing an instrument, uh, there's a lot of design choices. Uh, the color of the, uh, the 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 knobs or choosing the knobs, uh, the color of the pick guard, um, uh, the look of the guitar is very, very important.
0: Continuing with country, we've got Junior Brown's Git Steel guitar on display. Very unique looking. What is the story behind this one?
3: So Junior Brown, you know, it was obviously a guitar player, and he also played lap steel, uh, pedal steel guitar, and, um, you know, I think when he was playing live, he just didn't have the opportunity to do that. The pedal steel, you sit down and you play mm-hmm. it, right? Like It's almost like a table. Um, but he's playing a guitar and and was not able to switch up between those two instruments doing a live performance, so he wanted to find a way to be able to play both. And so his uh, a, a, a luthier that he had a relationship with, Michael Stevens, um you know, he worked together with him, and the way Junior tells it, he, he basically had a dream about how these things could could work together. He woke up and sort of moved his, uh, um, you know, some blankets around to sort of figure out how this thing could lay out. And they started, you know, strapping real guitars together with these big rubber bands and seeing how they would balance out. And ultimately, Michael uh, built a prototype, and um, Junior played that thing for 25 years, uh, just an amazing, amazing instrument. You can see with the, ex- with, with the instrument that's on exhibition, you, you can see the years on that thing. That's, it's one of my favorite <laughs> things in the show is you see the beer, the blood, the sweat, the you know the honky-tonk on that thing.
0: <laughs> Todd Votthe, there, curator of the Wire and Wood exhibit about guitars at the Museum of Design Atlanta. Also with us, Dennis Fano, a luthier and founder of Fano, Novo, and Revolta Guitars. Well, let's hear a little bit of Junior Brown doing what comes easy to a fool. Dennis, how about for you? You're based in Nashville. Even though you don't specifically design guitars for country music, your guitars have been really popular in that scene. Why do you think that is?
2: Uh, I think because they're uh, you know very versatile guitars um, I'm not originally from here we've actually only been in Nashville for two years, and um, I was wondering uh, you know before we got here, I was curious as to whether or not we would be accepted by uh, the the country uh, players um, and you know i I thought maybe perhaps uh, the design that we have for the uh, for the novo guitar the um the saris. Uh, was a, a little, uh, you know, kind of out of their comfort zone. Um, but uh, I found out pretty, pretty early on that that was not the case. We, uh, uh, built a guitar for Keith Urban, uh, just at the end of last year. And, um, he seems to be, you know, uh, enjoying it quite a bit. So, uh, he's already got a second one on order. <laughs>
3: you know, and, and Dennis and I talking previously, he told me this story about how he felt in terms of you buy these wonderful guitars out of a shop and you just paid 2500 bucks for it. And, and it's kind of like Spinal Tap, right? It's like, don't even look at it. You know, don't touch it. Don't look at it. And much less play it or possibly dent it.
2: That's right. Early on, um, I had customers, you know, constantly saying to me, this is beautiful. I don't even want to touch it. I'm just going to hang it on the wall or I'm going to keep it in its case. And I thought, well, you know, I I didn't build a piece of furniture. I built an instrument. It's meant to be played. That, that played heavily into, uh, my decision to start making, uh, instruments that were already, uh, distressed and, and, and broken in because you just feel like when you pick it up, you just, you can, you can start rocking without feeling like, uh, you you need to baby it.
3: Um, I think it's a wonderful way to approach the guitar, because you will actually play this thing, and that's what it's meant for, right? It's meant to be played. It's not meant to just be looked at.
0: I wonder what it's like for you guys, um, you know, loving guitars. Dennis, you building guitars to see, you know, like Pete Townsend in in that era of The Who when he was smashing them on the floor.
2: Yeah. Oh, it's great.
0: <laughs> I mean, I mean, I, I,
2: I, <laughs> I, 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 shed a tear when I see things like that, but, um, um, you know, uh, it's 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 rock and roll. So, you know, uh, anything goes.
3: Well, you know, the Kurt Cobain guitar is that way, right? Because, yeah. you know, the p- part of their show was, you know, they bust everything up mm-hmm. after. And I talked to um, Cobain's tech, his guitar tech, and he said, look, when that tour started, because he, pl- he played that throughout the In Utero tour, said, so, you know, we had about 20 guitars in boxes that Fender, Fender sent them. We toured around with them in a box. For every show, we'd pull one out of a box. I'd set it up. Kurt would play it. Most of the time, it would get just completely broke into bits, and we'd throw it in a dumpster, and it was gone. Every now and then, he wouldn't completely obliterate it, and I would repair it. So he said, out of that 20, um, at the time that Kurt passed, there was about two left in the box that were never pulled out. So they were never played. They stuck in the box. There were about 17 or 16 or 17 that were just thrown in the dumpster. And there were two that he knew of that he had repaired that were still playable. Mm -hmm. One of those is what's on display at and Wood.
0: Well, there are so many people who are associated with the Fender Stratocaster. Why why is Kurt Cobain the one to represent it? Because that guitar? Because that
3: story? Yeah, well, you know, the Strat was so hard to get somebody so iconic because, to your point, I mean, you could just sit here and name off I mean, everybody played a Strat, right? David Gilmour and Eric Clapton and Jimi Hendrix and Stevie Ray Vaughan, and, you know, on and on and on. Uh, the thing that was interesting about Cobain is, honestly, most people tend to uh, visualize him with a Fender Mustang in his hand. And that was just from a number of, they had a couple of photo shoots and he always had that guitar with him. But, you know, according to his guitar tech, he played a Strat more than anything else. So I thought that was sort of an interesting twist on that story.
0: It must be worth a lot of money.
3: Uh, I'm sure it's worth a <laughs> lot of money,
0: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, let's hear a little bit of Heart Shaped Box, of course, Nirvana.
3: Hey, wait, I
0: forever, your to hey, All right, let's switch gears. I'm thinking when James Hetfield and Buck Owens developed their guitars, first for themselves, and then put them on the market... There are other musicians that kind of kept them to themselves, like Bo Diddley. Why why was he keeping a secret?
3: I think, you know, Bo's thing was he was (laughs) a little bit, he was a pretty unique character, right? I I don't think he was maybe as open with that, right? There was some competition there with some of his contemporaries. And so he was actually taking effects and where, you call them stomp boxes, floor pedals, you know, effects pedals, sit on the floor, uh, change the sound. Um, He was incorporating some of those things into the guitars themselves. And as he's playing it, it's sort of covered up, right? And so people couldn't necessarily tell what he was doing to get these sounds. And I think that was, at least that's the lore, right? That part of it was him sort of taking his creative ideas and making them his own and and making sure nobody could sort of steal his ideas.
0: Let's hear a little bit of that signature Bo Diddley guitar sound
3: the Bo Diddley (laughs) beat. You know one thing and i was they've been getting a pretty good response is the design your own guitar yes. exhibit yeah where um you know you know the, the idea was that once you go through the icon exhibition or the icon gallery where you see these 12 famous instruments right and you learn about how they sort of designed their uh, image with these guitars um you then get to go and sort of create your own guitar putting different body styles and necks and headstocks together and then you can jump up on the stage and and uh, just sort of get to pre- pretend an air guitar a little bit, but something a little bit funner and more hands-on rather than just looking through a piece of glass.
0: Dennis, how does it feel to see yourself on the wall as a part of this exhibit with all of these vaunted and <clears throat> and revered guitars and guitarists?
2: Uh, there's only one word that came to mind, and it was surreal. Um, we walked in, and... Uh, you know, you see a giant, uh, not only the, the great guitars that are on display, but we see, uh, you know, a, a large photo of Leo Fender, a uh, similar sized photo of Paul Reed Smith. And then there I am at the end. And I'm like, what am I doing there? <laughs> so it's uh, it was pretty surreal.
0: Dennis Fano, guitar builder and founder of Fano Guitars, Novo Guitars and Revolta Guitars. Thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you. And Todd Vaught, what a pleasure. Thanks so much.
3: Absolutely. Thank you.
0: Todd is curator of Wire & Wood, designing iconic guitars at the Museum of Design Atlanta. It's on view until September the 29th. You can go to our website, gbbnews.org, to find out more about that. That is it for our show for today. We're going to leave you with the song This Charming Man by The Smiths with the great Johnny Marr on guitar. And we'd love to know, what is your favorite guitar solo? Let us know on our Facebook group, GPB Radio's On Second Thought, or tweet us at OST Talk. On Second Thought is produced by Amelia Brock, LaRaven Taylor, Priya Mahadevan, and Jake Troyer. Jesse Neiswanger is our engineer. Our interns are Allison Kraussman and Jessica Lowell. We get help from Don Smith, and Amy Kylie is senior producer. I'm Virginia Prescott. Thanks so much for spending some time with On Second Thought passing the seal.